Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Empowered Birth Podcast. Are you looking for ways to prepare your body for the healthiest pregnancy possible? We all know nutrition is key and a very important way in sustaining a healthy mom and baby. This is one episode that you will want to save and send to all of your friends who are trying to conceive, pregnant, or maybe postpartum. I guarantee also that you will want to take notes. So maybe take a minute, pause, grab a pen and paper. I really don't want you to miss a thing. There's so much information here that is just super important. My guest today, Dr. Sarah Thompson, is a wealth of knowledge. She is a certified functional medicine practitioner, board-certified acupuncturist, herbalist, birth doula, and author of the book, Functional Maternity, Using Functional Medicine and Nutrition to Improve Pregnancy and Childbirth Outcomes. She's the leading expert on the use of nutrition in the prevention and treatment of pregnancy complications. It was an eye-opening and brain-exploding episode. I will definitely be listening to this multiple times. It just is so full of information, and I know you guys are all going to love it. But before we get into the show, I do want to send a thank you to members who are supporting this podcast. I truly could not put in the time and the commitment into this show without you. And if it's on your heart to support the show because you've benefited from listening weekly, could you just check out the show notes for your options, including a monthly membership, which includes benefits, or maybe a one-time gift is more your style. Either way, thank you. And if you cannot support monetarily at this time, that's totally fine. If you would leave a rating and review and share with your friends, that would mean the world to me. This show has grown over 30,000 listeners because you share, and I am just so thankful. All right, friends, this episode is gold. Enjoy my interview with Dr. Sarah Thompson. Welcome to the Empowered Birth Podcast. I'm Allie McLean, registered nurse, home birth doula, and former feminist. My mission is to guide you into the freedom that is God's design for femininity, birth, and motherhood. There's a movement happening of powerful women uniting around finding out God's best for us. You're going to find information here that you won't find in your basic childbirth education class. You'll hear stories of women and birth professionals who are experiencing the redeeming experience that birth can be. You're going to get all the information you need to confidently navigate your way from pregnancy to postpartum and beyond. Are you ready to go on a Holy Spirit-empowered adventure? Then stick around. You're exactly where you should be. Hi, Sarah. Thank you for joining me today. I'm so excited to have you on and have this conversation. It's a really important one that I don't think is probably talked about enough. And so this is going to be very helpful for I know a lot of women out there. So first off, before we get into this conversation, would you just explain a little bit who you are, what you do? Yeah, well, Allie, first off, thanks for having me. And for those who don't know who I am, I am Sarah Thompson. I am a acupuncturist and a functional medicine provider who specializes in preconception, pregnancy, and postpartum care. I'm the author of the book, Functional Maternity 
using functional medicine and nutrition to improve pregnancy and childbirth outcomes. And my clinic is based in Fort Collins, Colorado, and it is sacred vessel acupuncture and functional medicine. Love it. Why don't you start by telling us what got you interested in functional nutrition? So I've always believed that nutrition is the foundation of health. In my graduate and undergraduate programs, I studied nutrition. And it's an element of medicine that has been neglected. And in my clinic, from the time I started practicing in 2005, nutrition has been a big part of the practice itself because acupuncture, herbology, all these things, Mm -hmm. we can ask your body to do something with those. But if the foundation is broken, if the nutrition is broken, your body can't do it. Like most people in my profession, I started out my practice doing primarily pain management, sports medicine, chronic pain, those sorts of things. And very little attention to the nutrition side is really given in those scenarios. But there's so much we can do in those cases that helps to reduce inflammation, helps to reduce their pain perception with nutrition. And as my practice developed over the last almost 20 years, my focus became so much more on that foundation because the foundation is exactly that. If you build a house, you can't just put up the framing. You have to have the foundation first. And if we neglect that foundation, the house falls over, no matter how much support we give it. And so through the course of my practice, I kind of discovered and fell in love with the functional medicine and functional nutrition side because it took into account more of a detailed understanding of nutrition. So a little less on diet and macronutrients and balancing your carbohydrates with your fats and your proteins and more how nutrition plays into the physiology and the biochemistry of Mm. the body. So was there a moment for you where it kind of clicked where you were like, something isn't working here and maybe it's this missing building block. Was there a moment for you or was that just a process over many years? It was a process over many years, for sure. My big aha moment was more with my own pregnancy Mm. and the lack of attention given to nutrition by the Western medical model. And I worked with midwives with both of my pregnancies. And even within that model, there was little knowledge on how nutrition played into maternal and pregnancy physiology outside of the small group of nutrients that go into growing a baby. Yeah. And to me, that was my big aha moment. Like, wait a second, like we could do so much better here if we took this foundation and we built it stronger. Yeah. Were you experiencing any pregnancy complications during your pregnancy or what was it about your pregnancy that you decided that nutrition was something that was lacking for you? So I think for me, I had such a base in nutrition coming into my first pregnancy that I actually felt pretty solid with my nutrition coming into pregnancy. It was more the lack of knowledge and the lack of resources Mm. out there, most of my knowledge was based off of, like I said before, the pain management, the chronic pain, sports medicine side of nutrition. And of course, in my mind, I knew nutrition was going to be a foundation of my pregnancy. But the more I tried to read and learn about it, the more I realized there wasn't much there. And there wasn't a lot of resources on that for pregnancy. And the more I kind of dove into it, I found that it kind of was there. Nobody was talking about it. 
Yes, that's very good. Well, can you talk a little bit about what is functional medicine? I know we hear that word a lot, and I think we're starting to hear it more more recently because people are wanting to really get to that root of like what's going on. So no more hints from me, but I just want you to explain in your own words what that is and then what functional nutrition is as well, what that would look like. So the running definition of functional medicine is root cause medicine. And I don't necessarily love that definition simply because it kind of doesn't give functional medicine the credit it needs. What functional medicine is, to me, is more of a deeper understanding of physiology. When you look at conventional Western med, we look at physiology. They definitely look at physiology. They know the physiology. But if you see a gastroenterologist, they know the physiology of the gut. They don't know how that gut physiology thus affects the brain, affects the thyroid, affects the adrenal glands, possibly the reproductive system. And all of those components, functional medicine brings the organ systems together and the ideas to understand the interconnections of the physiology as a whole. The magic of functional medicine too is the application of clinical nutrition. So not only do they, we (laughs) as functional medicine practitioners, as the medicine itself, take into account whole body physiology and the connections with each individual system as a whole, but then we take that clinical nutrition so that how individual nutrients work at a cellular level, at an enzymatic level, at a biochemical level, and how that affects then that whole body physiology. It's fascinating. I remember in high school, just wondering what I wanted to do with my life. And I knew that the body was so amazing, but I didn't quite understand how interconnected it was. And then going to nursing school, it's amazing how you do learn a lot about how things are connected. And then you get out into practice, Mm -hmm. there's a disconnect. And so I know for me, looking at functional medicine, I was like, but this just makes sense. Like, why aren't we talking about this more? So was there a moment for you where you realized like, wow, our body is so connected and amazing? Or did that happen in school for you? Or was that in your practice that you ended up saying that? So I kind of figured out the whole body is connected thing in college. Yeah, I was originally going to go to vet school. Okay. Gearing up for that, I worked at the vet school. I was in the system and I interned with a fascinating woman who is a DO, a DVM, and a licensed acupuncturist. So she did full body medicine on humans and animals. And I was just blown away by the results that she was getting with traditional Chinese medicine within this system. And then talking with her, she was like, yeah, it's it's a whole body medicine. The idea of traditional Chinese medicine is that everything in the body is connected. Mm-hmm. And that by treating the whole system, we can treat the disease. Mm-hmm. And I quickly changed my plans. I left vet school and I pursued the traditional Chinese medicine route. And I always joke that traditional Chinese medicine was functional medicine before functional medicine was cool. Uh, yeah. Because the idea of traditional Chinese medicine is that connection, that these different organ systems are all interconnected and that the heart governs the kidneys and the kidneys help control reproduction. And if you don't have good blood flow from the heart and all these different energetics. Yeah. And it's really interesting to me now that I have trained in, studied, certified in functional medicine, the really amazing connections between what we know with Western medicine and the theories of traditional Chinese medicine. And how there is a huge overlap in these different organ systems, how they work, these interconnections, they're just described differently. Yeah. 
I think this is a perfect place to switch into prenatal care. And what does that look like? Have you seen connections between Chinese medicine and like how they treat pregnancy versus how we in the Western world are treating pregnancy and nutrition and all of that? Mm-hmm. I think one of the biggest take homes that I have obviously learned throughout both different medical trainings is that in traditional Chinese medicine, we see the changes in maternal physiology. We describe them differently. We talk about pregnancy being a very warm, very young-based condition of life. We recognized in traditional Chinese medicine that the physiology was very different during the pregnancy period than any time outside of pregnancy. In conventional medicine, oftentimes, we don't respect that. We don't see the maternal physiology as being different. We treat women the same as we did prior to pregnancy. Some of that can be construed into the recommended daily allowance for many dietary nutrients, things like magnesium. I find it very concerning and very interesting that the RDA for magnesium goes down in pregnancy. Hmm. So outside of pregnancy, the RDA is 400, 450 milligrams. They drop it to 350 in pregnancy. But we know that elevated levels of estrogen throughout pregnancy also upregulate the absorption and transport of magnesium through the system. And so really, if you understand the physiology, you thus understand that magnesium demand increases, not decreases in pregnancy. What do you think their thought process is behind They never researched it. There are very few, if any, studies on the need for magnesium throughout pregnancy. No wonder so many people have Charlie horses during pregnancy. Exactly. <laughs> They're not exactly. <laughs> and when do they peak? In the third trimester, right? Yeah. And you see that oxytocin receptors yeah. need magnesium for oxytocin to bind to those receptors. So as somebody is going through the processes that lead towards a functional childbirth, which actually starts at 28 weeks. And they're producing oxytocin for things like Braxton Hicks contractions and those sorts of things. The need for magnesium increases to make sure that that functions the way it's supposed to. And you have to have those little minute contractions that we term Braxton Hicks in order to stimulate the production of things like prostaglandin receptors on the cervix Mm -hmm. and the oxytocin receptors on the top of the uterus that are going to be used in labor and delivery. And if you don't have magnesium, you can't make those simply because the oxytocin can't bind to the receptor. If the uterus is in demand for magnesium, it's going to steal it from mom and mom's going to get the symptoms of magnesium deficiency. And one of the first places we steal it from is the muscle systems. So you are going to get calf cramps, charley horses, restless leg, a lot of that symptomology because you're sacrificing your muscle health for the health of your uterus and your cervix. And yet it's normal. And yet it's considered a normal symptom of pregnancy. Yes. So we should be questioning symptoms that may have been considered normal in the past and ask maybe why, why is this happening? Yeah. And that's the beauty of functional medicine is we're asking why and trying to discover the why. Yeah. What's the why? It's really a wonderful way and a whole way to look at a woman and her baby during pregnancy and labor. And I think that it's something that is just so valuable. So you said that at 28 weeks is when a woman starts preparing or her body starts getting ready. Can you go a little bit more into that? And then is that when she should start preparing nutritionally for labor and delivery? And what would that look like? Yes. So very few people know that the maternal physiology begins to change somewhere between 24, 28 weeks, we start to see the cervix remodel and ripen at this time frame. 
And it really is more of a maternal response to the fetal physiology. Much of what goes in, well, all of, not much of, everything that happens in the lead up to labor and delivery is because of a maturing baby. And the mother's response to the different hormones and chemicals that are being produced by her developing and growing baby. So mid-pregnancy, one of the big things we talk about is the production of fetal cortisol and fetal DHEA. Mid-pregnancy, the fetal adrenal glands are the size of kidneys. They're huge. Yeah. And they're producing excessive amounts of these hormones. And we start to see that the cortisol production begins to peak at about 16 to 18 weeks. And what cortisol does is it starts to change the type of collagen fiber produced in the cervix. It starts to remodel the structure of the cervix. So up until then, one of the first things that happened in pregnancy was this huge surge in progesterone, right? And what progesterone did, it was also cervical remodeling. But what it did is it took the fibers of the cervix and made them basically braid together and create this fibrous ball that looked like a, a bird's nest. And it tightened it up. We can't have that baby falling out. We got to tighten that cervix up. As the baby's adrenal glands begin to grow, and we start to see that cortisol level rise in the maternal physiology, it starts to change that cervical structure. And so those fibers now start to unwind, and they start to become more parallel in structure. Now, they're not soft. They're not squishy. They're not going to ripen and, and create cervical effacement at this point, but they're starting to prepare for that next stair step. And so from that 28-week mark on, we have these little threshold stair steps that we have to hit throughout the rest of gestation to get to a point where now our baby is producing all these lung surfactants as their lungs are getting developed. And now the placenta is starting to send signals to the brain that says, this baby is super inflammatory and we really need to get it out. So let's make some oxytocin. That cervix should have been prepared for that starting at 28 weeks. And if these little stair steps didn't happen and baby matured, but mom's physiology couldn't respond for whatever reason, she may have a long labor. She may not be able to open that cervix as quickly, right? She may have things like failure to progress mm -hmm. because we missed some steps along the way, because maybe there was something missing in her response to the cortisol surge. So what have you seen in your practice that those steps that are most commonly missed during pregnancy, like those, is it nutrition mostly? That we're well, yeah. I focus on nutrition mostly, yeah. absolutely, okay. because again, we can ask the cervix to remodel, but if we're not getting some of these components, it's just not going to happen. Things like magnesium. Mm -hmm. So, as that cervix, like the cortisol, starts to stimulate some of that oxytocin in there and it's going to bind to the cervix and create the receptors for prostaglandins. So, we talked about the two hormones that are getting produced we had cortisol, which remodeled the cervix. The other hormone that we talked about was that DHEA, mm -hmm. and that gets converted by the placenta into estrogen. So that estrogen that we measure in pregnancy isn't really a mom's estrogen. It's, it's coming from her baby and her placenta. And what that estrogen does is it begins to stimulate the production of prostaglandins. Now, in order to make prostaglandins, you have to have specific essential fatty acids in the diet, omega-6 fatty acids, specifically mm -hmm. linoleic acid. Linoleic acid is found primarily in things like nuts and seeds. And so if your diet was low in things like linoleic acid, you may not produce the prostaglandins you're supposed to. And if you can't produce the prostaglandins you're supposed to, your cortisol levels may have made those fibers nice and parallel. But what prostaglandins do is they start to give them flexibility, okay? And that happens in cascades up until a couple of weeks right before the onset of labor. We start to see we hit another threshold. 
And once we hit a specific threshold of high levels of prostaglandins, high levels of cortisol, we start to see that these prostaglandins then get converted into a completely different compound called hyaluronic acid. I think everybody has heard of hyaluronic acid, but they've heard of it as a skincare product. It helps to prevent fine lines and wrinkles. It is a plumper of skin and cartilage. And what it does is once we've made these nice little parallel fibers, we've given them some flexibility. Hyaluronic acid comes in and it fills in the interstitial spaces with fluid. And we start to open those fibers up. This fluid basically becomes suspended in animation in between the cells. And this is that cervical effacement, right? This is where we start to see how effaced are you? Well, you're 51st effaced. Yay for some hyaluronic acid. That's the magical ingredient. And you have to have this lovely stair step and these thresholds and these cascades of chemicals in order to make hyaluronic acid. Now, hyaluronic acid is a carbohydrate-based chemical. We make it from starches in the diet. And in order to make it, not only do we have to have the starches, it's why dates help to ripen the cervix. We also need minerals. We need magnesium and we need manganese. Both of those are also found in dates. Dates also have a little bit of estrogen. They also have a little bit of linoleic acid. So it's one of the reasons that dates actually do help ripen the cervix is they can contain all of these nutrients that go into prostaglandin and hyaluronic acid production. Fascinating, right? So fascinating. About the dates, everybody has kind of a different timeline on when to start eating those. When do you typically suggest women do that? It depends on the woman, right? It depends on the person. And if it's a first-time pregnancy, we usually say 36 weeks. If it's somebody who had preterm labor because of early cervical ripening, we're probably not going to do that. If it's somebody who had maybe a prolonged gestation, we might do them a little earlier, depending on the why, right? But there's other foods that help. Things like white potatoes and sweet potatoes. Bananas, those are all super helpful. If you're looking for kind of a direct source of hyaluronic acid, eat skin and cartilage. It's where we find it. We do a lot of boneless, skinless chicken breasts in this country. That's not how a chicken comes. We're missing very key parts of nutrition when we isolate just the protein. And we get that from bone broth. You can if you made it with like carcass, right? Chicken feet. making a broth, chicken wings, making a broth. If you just took a good beef bone, right, that doesn't have a lot of connective tissue on it, it's good for you. Don't get me wrong. You're getting the bone marrow and all the good stuff there, but you're not going to get a lot of that hyaluronic acid component. Interesting. Okay. There was a really cool study and I forget what year it was, but it's one of the studies that really caused the big shift in induction models. Mm -hmm. So prior to this primary induction medication was Pitocin. Right. Everybody got Pitocin regardless of what that cervix looked like. Mm-hmm. Then all of a sudden we started to see a lot of side attack. Oh, we got to open the door. We kind of forgot that part where we just kept trying to push contractions to a cervix that was unfavorable. But we have to have a favorable cervix. And in the study, they compared different induction methods. One of the methods that they used was direct injection of hyaluronic acid into the cervix. Wow. And they would do an injection of hyaluronic acid into the cervix every three hours. And in this study, the hyaluronic acid group had more vaginal birth outcomes with zero side effects, but it was deemed an unusable method because nobody liked getting injected in the cervix every three hours. No. Right? That sounds horrible, doesn't it? It does. Like, yeah, no, I'll take a little Cervidil. That sounds way better. (laughs) Just a little pill? Okay, we can do that. (laughs) Right? Wow. But really what that study did was highlight the importance of this specific chemical process in a normal functional childbirth experience. Mm -hmm. 
This is so fascinating. My mind is trying to wrap itself around all of this information. So you've talked a lot about how nutrition can help with vaginal birth outcomes, which Mm -hmm. ultimately I haven't met a woman who was like, oh man, I just love having C-sections. It's not the ideal for most women. They just don't enjoy that part. And so if we can build on those stair steps towards a vaginal birth outcome, most of the time that helps reduce trauma. And that's a side that I just am so passionate about is having a pregnancy and labor that supports your postpartum. So you don't have to work through trauma and postpartum depression and all of these things. And so nutrition to help that process along in labor is so valuable. But what other maybe complications can be prevented by nutrition? Yeah, I think the two biggest ones would be preeclampsia and postpartum hemorrhaging. We've seen those rates go up exponentially in the last couple of decades. And very little attention has been given to the nutritional components that go into these conditions. Now, preeclampsia is very complicated. And preeclampsia can be considered more of a disease of preconception mm-hmm. because it has to do with faulty placental development. And the placenta develops in kind of two phases. The first phase is in like the first 10 weeks of pregnancy. And in that phase, there's kind of the embryo brought everything it needed to grow in those initial couple weeks. And there's very little that we can affect once we've actually become pregnant. It has more to do with what a mother did nutritionally prior to conception and how what she did preconception nutritionally affects the placental growth before she now has phase two, where she can actually start affecting things a little bit more nutritionally. There are other things that go into placental development in the first trimester that we can affect and things we do to support people who had, I have patients all the time who come in and they had preeclampsia with a first to second previous pregnancy and they're coming to me at seven weeks and we're like, okay, let's do what we can to support from here on out. Things we look at in the first trimester is thyroid function, progesterone levels, things that don't don't get tested very often, but we see that borderline low progesterone levels increase the risk of preeclampsia later. We -hmm. see that subclinical hypothyroidism in the first trimester increases the risk of preeclampsia later, and they often go undiagnosed unless you've had three or more miscarriages. Mm -hmm. So it's something that in our clinic, we take pretty seriously and we test it. And if we need to do something about it, we do. Because that alone can help reduce the risk of preeclampsia later. Preeclampsia has also been shown to be highly inflammatory condition. It's high oxidative stress. And anybody who's familiar with functional medicine has probably heard the term oxidative stress. And what that is, it's kind of like a fancy term for cellular inflammation, regardless of cause. It can be external causes like toxins, chemicals that come in and create inflammation, viruses, bacteria. It could be nutritional deficiencies and other causes of inflammation at a cellular level. But either way, it's kind of the same outcome. The cells are stressed due to increased reactive oxygen species, oxidative stress. When we have that, the cells don't function correctly. When they don't function correctly, we start to see placental dysfunction. And if we see placental dysfunction, we don't get a lot of the enzymes. We don't get a lot of the chemicals that should be produced by the placenta to affect the maternal physiology to support the pregnancy. Does that make sense? Yeah. Pregnancy, it is a lot. It is a lot. And it is very complicated. And 
it's not talked about in this way very often at all. Because I mean, from what I hear on, you know, midwifery side, home birth side, like if somebody does come in with toxemia or, you know, something like that, they're like increased protein and that that's going to help. So I want to hear more about what you think about that. But then also it's affecting the maternal side, but it's coming from an organ that the baby needs. So how is that? Is it pulling from baby when you have this issue or how is this working to keep the baby viable while you're still having? That placenta is going to do everything it can to keep that baby growing and keep that baby alive. Yeah. At the cost typically of mom. Right. Mm-hmm. When we start to th- see things like intrauterine growth restrictions, small for gestational age, then the, the placenta is prioritizing its health over the growth of the baby. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. Really cool. I don't know if you know this. I don't know if anybody really knows this, but there is a difference in chemical output between male and female placentas. Really? There is a sex specific genetic expression of chemicals by the placenta. Female babies and female placentas produce more immune-supportive chemicals, so a lot higher antioxidant profile. So they prioritize placental safety over fetal growth. Wow. That's why usually female babies are a little smaller. Yeah. Right? Or they're more sensitive, like so they can be more prone to small for gestational age if that placenta's a little on the sad side because it's going to prioritize immune system responses. It's also why we see that pregnancy loss is actually less common with female babies, which is interesting. Male babies and male placentas prioritize fetal growth over immune system support and antioxidant production. So they grow fast. They're usually growing a lot faster, usually a little bit further along on the growth curves. But those placentas are prone more so to oxidative stress, which is why we see more pregnancy loss with little boys. And we see more preeclampsia with male-based pregnancies. It's because that placenta doesn't produce as many antioxidants as a female placenta. Mm -hmm. That is fascinating. I've never heard that before. So this is, that's amazing. But it makes sense. Like I do see so many smaller girl babies mm-hmm. than boy babies. That's so amazing. Mm-hmm. So can you talk a little bit about that brewer's diet and brewer's high protein? Diet. Yes. High protein. So, yeah. So the idea behind the high protein diets, especially if you have things like protein in your urine, yeah. is to really basically compensate for the fact that you're losing proteins. Right. So if we can flood you with proteins, we can hopefully fix some of the damage from losing proteins. Does that make sense? Yeah. And is it damage that is happening then on the maternal side? Like what Mm -hmm. damage would be caused by low protein? So when we're looking at the damage from preeclampsia, once we get to a phase where the placenta is basically dysfunctional, usually it's in the third trimester when everything peaks. 34 weeks is kind of a big mile marker, right? A lot of people will find that they start to get diagnosed with preeclampsia anywhere from 34 weeks on right? That's the big time frame because that's peak placental growth. And then from 34 weeks, we start to see it kind of diminishing. If we're already very high oxidative, we're going to diminish a lot quicker and we're going to get some more dysfunction in the system. The placenta itself should be producing all these different chemicals that help to tell the maternal physiology to do something. One specific chemical is supposed to tell 
and regulate the kidneys and their ability to filter. This hormone is actually regulated by vitamin D. So vitamin D deficiency and preeclampsia kind of go hand in hand a little yes. bit. And so you'll see that vitamin D deficiency, we get less of this specific chemical and thus we get more protein in the urine. That gets interesting too, because we get in a whole other cycle where you have to have adequate levels of progesterone to make vitamin D receptors within the placenta. So you could have all the vitamin D in the world, but if you're progesterone deficient, you can have vitamin D deficiency symptoms such as preeclampsia. So it's this big complicated world and everybody's presentation in preeclampsia is going to be 100% different. And it takes a very trained individual to basically know what testing to do and know how to properly diagnose the physiological change that is happening in this individual to create the plan that works best for this person. Mm -hmm. B12 deficiency symptoms mimic HELP syndrome. Wow. So I've had people in the past who are like very, very HELP looking, right? Mm -hmm. But what it is, is they're actually B12 deficient and you give them extra B12 and their symptoms get better. Do they have NTFHR gene? A lot of these women who are low in B? You know, we don't test it enough to really look at it. I've seen some with it and I've seen some without, and it's just purely not getting enough or things like taking a lot of antacids in pregnancy. You have to have stomach acid in order to absorb and use your B12. You also have to have good gut bacteria. So people who have dysbiosis, people who have certain gut pathologies can also be prone to B12 deficiency, celiac disease, Crohn's disease, UC, IBS, those sorts of conditions predispose somebody also to B12 deficiency. Oh, that's that functional medicine approach. That's looking at the whole system. That's and that's saying, looking at where the mom was before her pregnancy yes. even. Yeah. And, you know, in my practice, I think I already said it, but we consider pregnancy care a year before conception through a year postpartum. Because a lot happens in that time frame before, during, and after that affect the mother's health throughout, obviously, her pregnancy. But then in some cases, the rest of her life. How many people have been diagnosed with things like hypothyroidism or these more degenerative, complicated, chronic conditions right after delivery? Yeah, hypothyroidism is a big thing that I am seeing a lot. Is that because of pregnancy nutrition or is that because of something that happens during the birth or what are you seeing? A little bit okay. of both. Really? Okay. So the thyroid gets hammered yeah. through pregnancy. And again, it's something we don't talk about enough, but HCG in the first trimester looks just like TSH and it literally hijacks the thyroid, binds to the TSH receptors and stimulates a double down of thyroid hormones. So I've had people in the past who have beautiful looking thyroids pre-conception. And you'd look at that and go, there's nothing wrong here. Like it looks great. But in their first trimester, that TSH pops up to a four. Mm -hmm. And you're like, something's wrong. Your thyroid can't keep up with the demand of both. And the Endocrine Society has recommended that we reduce the TSH range from what is it now? 0.4 to 4.5 to 0.2 to 2.5. Because we see that a TSH over 2.5 in the first trimester increases the risk of loss. Wow. It's that important. We talked about before, really, the embryo brings everything it needs to grow in that first trimester, except for two primary things, fuel and fire. Thyroid is the fire. Fuel is sugar. That's why people crave carbohydrates in the first trimester. That HCG also hijacks the pancreas and can produce up to 15 times the amount of insulin it did prior to pregnancy. You have to give that embryo fuel and fire, or that placenta doesn't grow the way it's supposed to. 
And that's why we see people with hypothyroidism have, and we're talking preconception hypothyroidism, whether it's Hashimoto's or nutritional based. And if it's not Hashimoto's, it's usually nutritionally based. Mm -hmm. Very few people have just genetically underperforming thyroids or small thyroids or, or something developmentally causing it. It's usually one of those other two causes. 90% mm -hmm. is Hashimoto's, the rest is nutritional based or a combination. But they're prone to more complications throughout pregnancy. And that includes things like preeclampsia and it includes things like postpartum hemorrhaging. It's one of those labs that just never gets run in pregnancy. I mean, how many times, you know, raise your hand if your thyroid was checked at any point in pregnancy, right? Yeah, I think the problem is with that from, I know a lot of practitioners that I've talked to is they just don't know what's normal during mm -hmm. pregnancy or postpartum. So they'll yeah. do even a postpartum lab check yeah. and say, you know, your thyroid is within range, yeah. but it within that clinical guideline it is, but is it low functioning? Is it lower on those? You know, and we're just not yeah. asking those questions. And so a lot of people, I, I've read the connection between low thyroid and postpartum depression, mm -hmm. which is one of the highest, like we have one of the mm -hmm. highest rates in the United States. Yeah. And why do you think that is? What are we missing here that other countries aren't? We're missing a lot of things. Let's be yeah. honest. Part of it is the birth experience itself. Mm -hmm. Trauma. Trauma is a big cause of depression. And everybody's level of trauma is different. You could have actually a very good vaginal birth, but still have some element of birth trauma because of other reasons. I've had patients who, I hate to say, set themselves up for birth failure because I think that's not fair to say to them, but kind of set themselves up for birth failure because we have this I feel like everybody can birth attitude. And I believe the physiology is designed for birth. But there are some complications that are 100% out of our control, right? And not everybody is going to have this textbook physiological birth, even if they do everything right. And I don't think it's fair for us and fair for me, even in what I do, where I'm promoting, yes, let's hug your physiology. Let's understand how the body is supposed to work and let's hug it and give it some love so that it can do what it's supposed to do. But sometimes there's things, you know, we know that there are genetic mutations, for example, things like MTHFR, right? Mm -hmm. There are genetic mutations in the production of oxytocin itself that no matter how much protein you consume, you can't make your oxytocin because genetically you can't make enough of it, right? There are things out of our control. There was a physician way back in the 1930s. I think a lot of people have probably heard of Dr. Weston Price. Mm -hmm. Nobody, nobody's probably heard of his colleague, Kathleen Vaughn. Mm -hmm. Kathleen Vaughn was another nutrition physician who studied primarily childbirth. And she wrote a book back in the 1930s called Safe Childbirth. And her big focus was on how nutrition affected pelvic structure. And one of the big things that we see as an increased cause of, quote unquote, need for cesarean, and sometimes it's a true need, sometimes it's not, is this small pelvic size mm -hmm. thing. And I've had one patient in 20 years and I'm a doula and I do this stuff where we looked at her and said, honey, this baby's not coming out. No position change is going to make this happen. Baby's stuck. Mm -hmm. in your, like your pelvis was small for mm -hmm. some reason. We don't know why. That can be caused, and according to Kathleen Vaughn, by improper childhood nutrition. Mm -hmm. So the nutrition that you have from birth through puberty is more indicative of pelvic shape and pelvic size than anything you do from puberty on. So that's out of our control. If somebody grew up in an area or their mother was malnourished, then they were born into a malnourished type childhood, they may have a structural issue that is out of our control. 
right? And she could do everything she's supposed to do nutritionally and have this great functional birth experience except for the tail end. And that sucks. Mm -hmm. And so there can be, again, this whole, and I do believe, again, everybody's physiology is designed for birth, right? Mm -hmm. Animals birth, we birth, everybody births. If you're a mammal, you birth, right? Lizards birth, everything births. But sometimes there's genetics. Sometimes there's things that go into that limit that possibility. Do I think 30%? No, mm-hmm. no, no, no. Mm-hmm. We're talking maybe a normal percentage would be closer to five, 10% max, mm-hmm. right? Let's compare other developed countries. They don't have 30% cesarean rates. Nope. We have the birth stats of close to what they do in Iran. Yeah. That's a problem. That's not genetic structure. That's something else. But I've had patients, kind of went off a tangent there, That's good. who really do believe that their body can birth. And it does birth. Maybe it's a beautiful vaginal birth, but they needed a little help at the end, right? Or it was longer. They birthed, it was vaginal, but it was long and hard, right? It was a three-day birth. And that's traumatic, even if it was a nice vaginal birth, right? Even if baby was good and mom was good. The birth experience itself, they believed was going to be this textbook scenario and they were going to have this beautiful water birth and it didn't happen. And they feel like they failed in some way, even though they didn't, Mm -hmm. because they kind of set themselves up for disappointment in a way because they had this view that was the moon. The expectations, definitely when expectations are broken, that does lead to trauma. And I've seen that many times that managing expectations or even having the support Mm -hmm. to walk you through if expectations were not met. Exactly. Personally, my birth story is like, all of my labors are so long. And I knew last time, my third birth, I'm like, I'm going to have a short birth this time because it's my third baby. Like, I've got this. And yeah. I had that expectation that it was going to only take me seven hours, which is really short for me. <laughs> and it didn't happen. And I remember a point during my labor being like super disappointed because I had hit my time in my head that like this was an expectation I put on myself and it didn't happen in it. It is. It's when expectations are broken, it it hurts. Yeah. So I totally get where you're coming from. And I also do love that our bodies come with so many fail safes. Oh, like, absolutely. Even though if our nutrition isn't perfect, if our genetics are not perfect, it's amazing how we were designed and how the baby can work with broken moms to still come in and still be healthy. I've seen it time and time again, where there's, you know, a partial placental abruption and that baby compensates by getting out of there super fast. Like, yeah. And speaking of, I've seen a lot more of that since COVID. So I'm curious Mm. if you've seen anything in your practice that has affected the placenta or thyroid, or if you've seen any effects from COVID on mom and baby? So two things, right? Number one, the stress factor. Mm. Stress factor is huge. We don't talk enough about the stress factor. Cortisol is our primary stress hormone. Throughout pregnancy, there should be a normal 500% increase in cortisol production. We talked about cortisol as it applies to the cervix earlier. Mm. Cortisol also goes into the maturation of the placenta and the baby. So it kind of becomes that cycle. So the more cortisol, the more mature baby is, the more mature baby is, the more cortisol there is. But cortisol is our stress hormone. It's also made from progesterone. And so interestingly, we can see that when we are stressed, we start to lose progesterone, right? Progesterone is needed to support that placenta blood flow. So we can see, interestingly, there was a study, and I can't remember when it was, but it linked lower third trimester progesterone levels to more things like placental abruption. 
mm-hmm. and hemorrhaging because one of the things that, so think first trimester, like low progesterone levels are a very common cause of things like subchorionic hematomas and hemorrhages. Mm-hmm. You're just applying that to third trimester. Yeah. You're applying that to labor and delivery. So when we are stressed, the, again, the body is already being asked to do 500% more adrenal function than it would outside of pregnancy. And then you throw in stress about COVID, the world. Maybe you got COVID. That's another oxidative stress component in and of itself. All these different things, right? Stress is in the, in the name of oxidative stress for a very good reason because it raises and changes cortisol levels. All of those things increase the demand of the adrenal glands on an already over-demanded adrenal gland. And if that's the case, we start to steal our progesterone because survival is more important than reproduction. And so then we start to see low progesterone levels and low progesterone symptoms, such as placental dysfunction, lower vitamin D receptor attachments on the placenta. We see vitamin D actually being associated with some of these placental complications, such as abruptions and hemorrhaging later. Mm -hmm. Thyroid plays into it as well. Interestingly, we see that subclinical hypothyroidism in the third trimester is associated with more hemorrhaging during childbirth. Nobody tests it. But we also see that when you're stressed, your body starts to shut down thyroid function, this adrenal thyroid connection. And so if we are increasing our stress levels, whether it's oxidative stress, whether it's emotional stress, your body literally goes into survival mode. And when you're in survival mode, it becomes literal survival. This, we can't make this baby and this situation work at the cost of us on this stress level. And so it changes different hormonal patterns to suit that. And thus we have those complications. Yeah, there was a, that is so interesting. And it's starting to click and make so much sense. But there has been a couple of NICU nurses that I've uh, talked to or have had other people talk to and said, they've said that the NICU percentage like capacity has increased about 10 to 20% since COVID. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it is the, the amniotic fluid is breaking early. Mm-hmm. And so that there is a lot of premature births, yeah. which makes so much sense because if you're pulling, you know, if reproduction is not as important as our survival and that oxidative stress is going up, there's going to be complications like that. Mm-hmm. And so for moms who are having babies during this time, what's the best way to support nutritionally your placenta? And I know that's yeah. hard because it was better like preconception, but let's say they're hearing yeah. you now in second trimester. There's, what is what can yeah, they do? There's totally still things that can be done. And the primary thing is eat your veggies. I mean, it's as simple as that. We have seen study after study that links fruit and vegetable intake with lower rates of preeclampsia mm-hmm. because not only do fruits and vegetables have our vitamins and minerals and all this good stuff, they've also got high antioxidants. So it's feeding your body the antioxidants that maybe it's already struggling to kind of do. You're supplementing antioxidants via your diet. And there's, again, study after study that links these different antioxidant deficiencies, coenzyme Q10, alpha-lipoic acid, N-acetylcysteine. Superoxide dismutase, glutathione, all of these are associated with basically being lower levels in preeclamptic cases. Either the placenta can't produce them or we're using them up to try to fight inflammation. Either way, we need them. Other antioxidants that we talk about are things like vitamin C, vitamin E, beta carotene. Those are all great food antioxidants that help to support the cells themselves. So if somebody has preeclamptic symptoms or is worried, about it because they had it in a previous pregnancy and they're, you know, in that second trimester, third trimester phase, there's still stuff to do to support the placenta. 
it's one of those things I always say, we can't reverse damage. So if the damage is done, it's done. And we just, we manage the situation and we do a really good job of managing preeclampsia with nutrition. But the key is high antioxidants, lots of fruits and vegetables become your best friend. I think plant-based has a great, great spot. Do I ever put people on plant-based diets when they're preeclamptic? No, because there are so many good things that we find in our animal products that we also need. We see iron, right? Yes, you can get iron from legumes and, and things like that too, but having some good organ meat in there is just a phenomenal thing to add to the maternal diet when we have these conditions. Folate, B12, folate is good in legumes. B12 is really, you can't get it in a plant-based diet unless you're supplementing with things like nutritional yeasts mm -hmm. and, and those sorts of things. So it can be done. I've totally had patients who are plant-based and do phenomenal. Mm -hmm. It just has to be done well and you got to make sure you're doing it good. Just like any diet. I mean, the standard American diet is a horrible diet and, yeah. <laughs> yeah. and it encompasses supposedly everything. Yeah. But yeah. to me, yeah. No, I, I could talk to you forever about all of this. I There's so much more that I have that maybe you'll have to come on again because I have so many other questions and my mind needs to wrap around all of this. But I just want to give you a chance. Is there anything that you just want to leave my audience with as this is one thing that you just need to know during your pregnancy and labor? That nutrition matters. Yeah. It doesn't mean you have to be perfect. By all means, eat a brownie and have some ice cream. But 80-20 rule, 80% mm -hmm. of the time, get the good stuff in. It doesn't, you know, not everybody has the option of getting organic. Not everybody has the option of getting grass-fed beef or anything like that. But do the best you can and just know that it does matter, mm -hmm. right? It matters for the growth of the baby, obviously, because we talk about that in prenatal nutrition all the time. But it also matters for your health mm -hmm. and and how your birth could go and how you'll feel postpartum and and kind of the rest of your life type stuff. And if you need help, there's help. I have two downloads on my website. One is my functional fertility handout, which talks about preconception nutrition <laughs> and the preventative side. I have another one that's my patient's guide to planning nutritionally for childbirth mm -hmm. that goes into detail all these things that we kind of touched on in that preparation for labor and delivery and how nutrition plays into these different functions. Oh, wonderful. I'm so going to put are... those. Yeah, that is so perfect. I'm going to put those in the show notes. So okay. make sure that you guys go and click on that because that I'm sure will be such a helpful tool. Where else can they connect with you? Yep. I am always open to communicate. So if anybody has questions, they can email me directly at hello at functionalmaternity.com. I am on Instagram and Facebook, and it is at functional.maternity, and people are more than welcome to DM me there. Follow my pages for more information. The information I tend to throw out is a lot of research studies, so it's sometimes pretty technical, but there's a lot of good things out there for expectant yeah. moms. And if anybody is interested in talking deeper than those sources, they can definitely reach out to the clinic, which is sacredvesselacupuncture.com. And kind of, we always do free phone consultations through the clinic as well. And so if anybody's interested in talking a little bit more in depth about their specific case, I do free 15 minute phone consultations. That's amazing. Do you do virtual patients we do. at all? We do. I have patients yeah. literally all over the world. I love it. That is such a helpful tool. I'm sure people are going to love connecting with you because this episode was so amazing and there is such a gap. So I'm glad you're talking about this because it matters so much nutrition matters. So thank you so much for coming on the show today. I appreciate it. Thank you, Allie. It was a pleasure. I'm not sure about you, but that episode blew my mind. 
I know this will be one I will refer back to many times. So please take a moment, follow Dr. Sarah on IG for more amazing information on how to support your body through nutrition. Find her links and more in the notes below. Thanks again for joining me. And as always, ask questions and stay empowered.